can open in your Bibles tonight to 1 Thessalonians. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand, and the ushers will bring one to you so you can follow along in our study. 1 Thessalonians. The life work and ministry of the Apostle Paul was to plant churches. Seventeen chapters of the book of Acts are dedicated to chronicling and following the footsteps of Paul as he moved throughout the civilized world in his day by the Spirit of God planting churches in the name of the Lord. Three missionary journeys are highlighted there as you travel with him, beginning in Asia Minor, where he started off with the Church of Antioch, and then moving throughout what is modern-day Turkey, establishing and planting churches there in that region. And then during his second missionary journey, he moved throughout that same region until the Lord called him and those that were traveling with him to cross the Aegean Sea into the European continent, landing on the north part of the Grecian Peninsula, if you can picture that on a map of the Mediterranean Sea. In crossing the Aegean Sea, they landed in the city of Philippi, where Paul met a bunch of women that were praying by a river, and he shared the gospel with them there. And the Lord opened the heart of a woman whose name was Lydia, a wealthy woman from Thyatira who the Lord opened and she received Christ and Paul stayed with her for the short time that he was in Philippi. And not long after the beginning of the ministry, Paul cast a demon out of a witch and it just so happened that he cast a demon out of the wrong witch because she was used by those that were exploiting that you know, problem she had, she was used to make a great deal of money for some there in the city. And when Paul cast the demon out, their income was interrupted, and the result of it is that they started a riot, and that Paul was then arrested, put in jail, and beaten severely. It says that they laid many stripes upon him, and that they fastened his feet in the stocks or in the bonds. They would stretch out the legs and the hands, and they would put them there in the prison. Well, you know the story. Paul and Silas, bound there in the prison, began to sing at midnight a praise song to the Lord. And God responded to Paul's praise by sending an earthquake, a supernatural earthquake into the city that broke the chains of the prisoners and Paul was miraculously set free. Well, long story short, they urge Paul to leave the city. And he doesn't leave quietly as Paul didn't do anything quietly. But he leaves Philippi bloodied, beaten, and limping and he hobbles 80 miles west to the city of Thessalonica. It's located on the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea, or the southwest corner of the, uh, I mean, yeah, northwest corner of the uh, Grecian Peninsula there. It's located, and it's a very wealthy city at the time that Paul goes there. It's a very large city, a population of roughly 200,000, which in that day was a large city. 
It was situated on a major trade route that linked Rome with the Eastern world. Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, the most powerful city of the day. And so Thessalonica was right in the channel that connected Rome with the whole Eastern world, and therefore it was a very wealthy port city. It was in view of Mount Olympus, which was the, you know, mystical home of all of the Greek deities or the pagan gods that the Greeks worshipped. And so it was a city that was heavily given to idolatry. And now here comes this limping, bloodied, weakened, short man whom the city wasn't prepared for. And it tells us that when Paul came into the city of Thessalonica, there in Acts chapter 17, that he entered into the synagogue of the Jews and he reasoned with them for three full weeks, just three weeks, opening and alleging that this Jesus is the Christ. And it tells us there that a few of the Jews believed, but that a multitude of the Greeks and of the chief women believed. And so God begins to do a work, but it isn't the Jews that respond primarily, it's the Greeks that respond. And the result of that was that it stirred up a jealousy within the Jews there in Thessalonica, and it says that they stirred up, I love this phrase, Lewd fellows of the baser sort. (laughs) Do you know any of those? I used to work with a bunch of lewd fellows of the baser sort, you know. And it says that they stirred up these lewd fellows of the baser sort and that they stirred up a riot that engulfed the whole city. Now, if you can imagine a riot that affects 200,000 people, a city with a population of 200,000 in that day, And they said that most famous verse, the rioters, they said, these men that have turned the world upside down have come here also. This bloody, beaten, limping man who for three weeks shares Jesus in a synagogue starts a riot 200,000 strong and his reputation follows him as the one who is turning the world upside down. Well, Paul is urged by night to leave the city of Thessalonica. And he hobbles then 50 miles west and he goes to a city called Berea. And you might be familiar with Berea or the Bereans. They're famous because they were ones that searched the scriptures. And Paul was in Berea for just a short time. And what he did is he left in Berea two of his chief men, Silas and Timothy, his travel companions. He left them in Berea, and then he himself traveled 200 miles south to the city of Athens in Greece. So he's in the Grecian peninsula in the north, and he goes 200 miles south to Athens. He's there long enough to preach one sermon in the open market, and then he moves 50 miles west to Corinth, the city of Corinth. You may be familiar with the Corinthian ministry. And he spends a year and a half in Corinth. But while he's in Corinth, or rather, when he arrives in Corinth, he sends a message to Berea for Timothy and Silas to leave and join him there in Corinth. So Timothy and Silas leave Berea. They come and they meet up with Paul in Corinth. And once they arrive, Paul is stirred in his heart. There's something 
that's bothering him, something troubling him, he realizes, you know what? I have a feeling that things are going really bad in Thessalonica. The size of the riot that ensued and the sour situation that was birthed there because of what happened when they you know, stirred up the city, these lewd fellows of the baser sort. I'm worried about the Christians in Thessalonica. And so Paul immediately turns Timothy back around, who has just come from Berea, and he sends him back to Thessalonica. He says, Timothy, I want you to go to Thessalonica and find out how they're doing, if they're holding on in the faith, or if this great persecution, this great affliction that they're facing, has caused them to turn away from the Lord. So Timothy goes to Thessalonica spends a little bit of time there assessing the situation, and then he immediately returns and travels the 200 miles south back to Corinth where Paul is awaiting him. And Timothy brings word to Paul. He says, Paul, I've got bad news and I've got good news. The bad news is that the situation for the Christians in Thessalonica is dire. It's a very tough time. The persecution is heavy. The affliction that they're facing, the result of the prejudice of the Jews and now also of the, you know, the public there, the Romans there against the Christians has affected them in every way and they're under great tribulation. They're going through it terribly. However, there's also good news. Although outwardly, physically, the situation is dire and dark, spiritually, the church is thriving. The Christians individually are growing. They're bearing fruit. There's good things happening in their life. Not only individually, but also congregationally. There's such a powerful move of the Spirit there in Thessalonica that they have actually become the spearhead of the Lord's work in the whole region of Macedonia, which is the north part of you know, the Grecian peninsula, is that they have a, a name and an influence there in the name of the Lord and that they are thriving spiritually. So outwardly, physically, they're afflicted, they're in tribulation, they're in trouble. But spiritually, inwardly, they're doing great. However, there are some there that are very confused. If God is among them, if God is in them, if God is doing a work in their midst, if God loves them, then why is it that they're suffering so terribly? So Paul hears this report from Timothy and it motivates him to write a letter to the Thessalonian Christians. The letter that we have here is the oldest letter in the New Testament. It is the first letter that Paul the Apostle wrote in his ministry. He wouldn't write another letter until six years later. So this is the very earliest of Paul's writings. And the motive or the reason for Paul writing this letter to the Thessalonians was to affirm their faith and affirm the Lord's favor in their life even though they're going through a season of affliction and tribulation. That's the reason, to encourage them in light of the trouble that they're facing outwardly. And here's the outline of the book. Chapter 1 is Paul giving them affirmation or confirmation of their salvation even though they're facing tribulation. So affirmation in spite of the tribulation that they're going through, chapter 1. Then, chapter 2 is the opportunity they have to shine in light of their tribulation. 
the opportunity that their trials are opening for them to be fruitful in the name of the Lord. The opportunity that affliction brings. Number three, chapter three, is the necessity of Christian unity and fellowship while going through tribulation and affliction. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, is the Christian's behavior in times of affliction and tribulation. Chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11, is the hope of the Christian in light of tribulation. And it's all about the Lord's return. And then chapter 5, verses 12 through 28, the end of the book, is just general instruction, Christian principles, and benediction as Paul closes out the epistle. One topic or theme that runs throughout this book, more so probably than any other book in all of the New Testament, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. In every chapter, the Apostle Paul mentions, at least references, the return of the Lord, the second coming. And in chapter 4 and into chapter 5, he gives us some of the best and detailed information we have as New Testament believers about the second coming of Christ. And so it's a major theme as we go through Second or First Thessalonians is the return of Jesus Christ. Also of note, as we go through this and, and look into it, something that's worth mentioning is to realize the depth of doctrine that the Apostle Paul had evidently shared with them in only being there for three weeks. He talks about things like assurance, the assurance of the believer. He writes to them about the doctrine of election, which I don't even understand. He talks to them in depth about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And all of this, Paul mentioned or taught them during the three weeks that he was there among them. And so great depth that was going on in this church. And there was a major work of the Spirit that was going on there within the city. Well, let's get into it here 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul begins in verse 1. He says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus. Silvanus is Silas. It's, that's that Greek name, you know, like Timotheus. And we know that's Timothy. Silvanus is Silas. These are Paul's travel companions at this point within his ministry. He says, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes in Paul's greetings, he gives to us a clue as to where he's going with his subject or with his text. And here he begins by saying right off the bat, listen, you guys are in. Evidently, there were some there that were wondering, are we in? Is God among us? The situation is sour. Things are going roughly for us, outwardly. Many are hungry. Many are without work and employment because of their Christianity. Some are even being martyred, we'll find out in chapter 4. And he says, listen, you guys are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then his common greeting, he says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And so Paul says, listen, we're praying for you. So he identifies himself, Silas, and Timothy, his travel companion. He says to them, listen, you guys are in. And he says, listen, we are praying for you. 
And now he's going to break right into his agenda or his reason for writing unto them. And he, he, he addresses and also answers somewhat the question that many of us wrestle with as Christians. In fact, it's the question of the ages. And that is, how does tribulation and affliction compute in the life of the Christian? Or some people have put it this way. Why do bad things happen to good people? You ever heard that question? Have you ever had that question, thinking that thing through? Where does affliction and tribulation compute into the equation of God's love and God's call upon our life and and the fact that we are adopted as his sons and daughters? Why do we suffer affliction and tribulation when we belong to the Lord Almighty who is above all principalities and powers? And sometimes that causes that mysterious E to show up on our calculator, doesn't it? You know when you put the numbers in a calculator and the numbers are far beyond that calculator's ability to compute? And you just get an E on the screen? And we go through things in life sometimes that cause the E to come up on our screen. Lord, where are you in this? Why is this happening? I remember as a new believer, my life was a mess. Physically, Mentally, emotionally, in every way that that is possible, my life was completely just messed up. It was out of order. It was broken completely. And, And the Lord met me. He had mercy on me. And the Lord saved me in that condition that I was in. And he did some things in my life. He forgave me of all of my sins. I didn't understand how that worked But I knew it to be true. I understood the gospel and I received it. And I knew that he had forgiven me of all my sins. He had also adopted me as his son. I knew that I was saved. I knew that I belonged to him, that I had received him. And that that placed me into a position where I was called his son. I was his. He also gave to me a promise. I remember reading Philippians 1.6. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And he gave me that word that he started something in my life and that he was also going to finish that work that he began. And he did a fourth thing for me. He gave me a love for and an understanding of his word. From the very beginning, I would would hunger for the word of God. I couldn't get enough of it. And he gave me the ability to understand it. Not perfectly, but I could understand the concepts and the general you know, point of of what I was reading and the Lord was speaking to me in his word. And and at that time, those early days, there was light on the horizon. I I remember thinking to myself, things are going to get better. This is great. Then guess what happened? I lost all or most of my friends. Nobody wanted to be around me anymore. It was a very lonely season. I still struggled with anxiety and depression. It didn't go away. I didn't feel any better. I thought that those things would go, that I would just have this this constant feeling of elation and bliss, you know, but that didn't happen. I was still anxious constantly. I still felt depression, and it didn't get any better. There was no change in any of that. It was just constantly there. I still wrestled with temptation and was overcome by sin and the shame that accompanies sin. That was still present in my life in those early days. And I remember that instead of my Christianity just being the steady upward climb that I hoped it would be, I began to function on sort of this roller coaster. Constantly going up and down. Well, today things are going good and I feel good, so God must be pleased with me. 
he, he must be giving me his favor and his love because, man, today things are going so well. But then the next day, well, I'm down today. Well, things aren't going so well and the bills aren't being paid and there's no outlook or direction. Oh, oh well, what's going on? Why, where is God? And this roller coaster began to, to ensue within my life. And in those early days, I found myself broke, jobless, alone, and having absolutely no direction for my life. And I remember thinking, Lord, isn't this supposed to be over? I mean, I I gave my life to you. I belong to God. Why am I going through these things? Why am I experiencing these difficulties? And I thought, you know, I need to talk to my pastor because that's what people do when they feel like that. And so I went to to the church, Calvary Chapel there outside of Rochester. And I go in, and it was during the week, and I was off from from work. And and, and I went in, and the secretary said, oh, he's up in the sound booth installing new carpet. And so I go up in the sound booth, which was one story up, you know, a flight of stairs from the sanctuary up there in the back. And and I go up there, and and I see him. And he he was a man. He looked like Jerry Garcia. He had long, kind of gray flowing hair and a big bushy gray beard. You know, in fact, when I first got saved, I thought he was Jerry Garcia. And that he had just gotten saved and that that's what happened to him, you know. And, and, and I come up there and I see him and his backside is facing me. He's underneath the counter where all the equipment is. And he's hammering the, you know, the, the carpet into the corners there underneath the table. And, he's, and he, he doesn't even come out. He just says, what's going on? And I start. And for five or ten minutes, I just paced back and forth in the sound room. And I'm just going, well, this is going on in my life. And and why is this happening? And I thought by now this would be over and I would be further along. And, And I mean, really, just going on and on and on about everything, this, that, and the other. And he's just under there working. I hear him still pounding the carpet, kicking the whole thing, you know. And I'm thinking, what? how insensitive. You know, he's not even listening to me. He's just putting this in. God, not even the pastor cares about me. And then finally, after about 10 minutes, he, he comes out from underneath the thing and his hair is kind of in his face and he's covered with sweat and he rolls back on his, you know, sits on his feet, on his heels, on his knees and he's got knee pads on and he just looks up at me with his mouth open a little bit and he says, brother, you're right on schedule. And then he ducked his head back under the table and he went right back to work, you know. And in a very real sense, that's the message that the Apostle Paul has for the Thessalonians that are going through this season in their Christian experience. Brothers, you're right on schedule. You're right exactly where you're supposed to be at this season of your life, in this time, you know, what God is doing. Now, their mistake, the Thessalonians, at least in Paul's perception, it's what motivated him to write. And it's oftentimes our mistake as well is that what we do is that we measure the strength of our relationship with God according to the outward circumstances that we're in. If things are going well, and if we're feeling well, then all must be well between us and the Lord. Or if things aren't going well, or if we don't feel well, then things must not be going well between us and the Lord. The problem is our feelings and our circumstances are never to be the measure or the stick by which we evaluate our connection to Christ or our standing before him or our salvation. 
So what Paul does in the remainder of this chapter is that he gives to us four things that are for us an affirmation that we are indeed in the faith. Four things that we can go by to judge that, yes, God is at work in our life, and yes, we are saved. Four things that the Thessalonians had that Paul could point to and say, see, look, this is present, therefore you are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so four things in these next verses that he points out to them that are an affirmation of their faith. The first one in verse 3 is that there is spiritual fruit. There is spiritual fruit. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. In the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon that Jesus gave, you know, the one that has the Beatitudes in it and, you know, all all the rest, Jesus spoke these words. He said, even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. What Jesus is saying there in parabolic form is that concerning trees, now we all understand what a tree is, right? That we would see in an orchard, a fruit-bearing tree, what Jesus is speaking of. And what he's saying is that the authenticity of the appearance is proven by the fruit that is born on the branch. And that's true, isn't it? You can identify an apple tree if you don't know the leaf and the bark, you can certainly know it by its fruit. We can all identify an apple or a peach, or a cherry, you know, according to the tree, according to the season. The fruit is what validates the appearance of the tree. Oh, you know, it's funny, that tree doesn't look like an apple tree, but it's bearing apples. It's an apple tree. And the same thing is also true of Christians. Fruit in the Christian's life is the evidence that God is at work in their life. You say, well, I understand apples and peaches and cherries, but What is fruit in the life of a Christian? The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he was discussing this concept of spiritual fruit. And he epitomized it or summed it up in chapter 13, verse 13. He says this. He says, Now abide faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Christian fruit is characterized or summed up in the presence of faith, hope, and love in the life of a person. You say, okay, I understand that, but those are invisible things. They're intangible. How can you identify faith, hope, and love when those things are not visible? You can't look at someone's life and see faith or see hope or see love working in their life. That's true. Those are invisible. But what Paul is saying here in verse 3 is that though those things are invisible, each one of them has a visible, tangible component. There is a visible or tangible component to these invisible fruits. He says, first of all, your work of faith. If faith in the Lord is real in a person's life and not just something that they say, then it is evidenced by the fact that they work for the Lord. 
If their faith in the Lord is real, then it's evidenced by the fact that they work for the Lord. James writes and he says this, James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith? He says he's got it. I've got faith. I believe in Jesus. But he has not works. Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, if a man say, Thou hast faith, and I have works, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, my work for the Lord will be the evidence of the faith that I have in the Lord. You believe that there is one God. You have faith, and you do well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O man, that faith without works is dead? And so the evidence or the tangible part of faith that is visible and observable by others is the work that we do. Faith without works is dead. And Paul says, I see in your life when I look at you, there is a work of faith. Then he says, a labor of love, second of all. If love in the Lord is real, then it will be verified by the tangible evidence of labor. I think of Jacob, whom it tells us the Bible that he loved Rachel. And that he was willing to labor for Rachel for seven years. He was willing to wait and labor for seven years to marry her because of the love that he had. And it tells us that they seemed to him as though they were only a couple of days. That's a labor of love. He had to wait. Women, listen, young ladies, hoping for a man, waiting to marry. Listen, it says that he waited seven years to consummate, to come together. And that it seemed to him to be but a couple of days because he loved her. True love waits. It was a labor of love. I think of Paul, who we read of what he did, how he was beaten, how he was tortured, how he was afflicted constantly. And yet he says, the love of Christ compels me. It was a labor that was motivated by love. I think of Jesus. The Bible says that he created all things and that he put the worlds into existence with his fingertips. Psalm chapter 8 says that the stars are the works of his fingers. But Isaiah chapter 53 says that he bore his arm to save us. That means he rolled up his sleeves. To put the planets in motion, to fling beetle geese, that super giant star, into its place was just, bing, the flick of his finger. It was easy for God. But he said he had to roll up his sleeves to do the work of redeeming you and I. It's a labor of love. And if love is real, it's always demonstrated by labor that lasts. See, if faith inspires work for the Lord, love sustains it. Love sustains it. It keeps it going. It's the only true motive for any ministry or any service or any labor that we would do in the name of the Lord, if it's not motivated by love, it might start well, but it won't finish. Only that which is motivated by God's love will ultimately last. And Paul would look at them and he would say, hey, you've got that. There's a labor of love that I see in your midst. And then the third thing is patience of hope. If hope in the Lord is real, 
then it is verified or visible or seen. It's tangible because a person has patience. They're willing to wait upon the Lord. Wait for his deliverance. I don't think there is any greater evidence in all of God's ways that God is really at work in someone's life than when someone is in the furnace of affliction, going through difficult circumstances, trying times, and they're willing to wait for the Lord to bring them through and not take things into their own hands. Paul says you display this patience of hope in the Lord, in the sight of God and our Father that this is real in your life. Paul says, I see your fruit. Well, in verse 4, he gives us the second proof. The first fruit, of, or the first proof that they are in the Lord, that they are affirmed, is that there's fruit in their lives. The second that he brings to their attention is that they were chosen by God. Look at verse 4. He says, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Your election of God. This doctrine of election. Now, we are facing another election season, aren't we? And you can't go very far without people campaigning and politicking, and you hear speeches and mud, you know, and interruptions, and everybody's, you know, pushing their political agendas in this season because we know it's an important time. There's an election that, that, that's upon us, you know. We're going to choose... Who is going to be the next leader of our country? We're going to elect someone. By the way, the Bible tells us that we're to pray, right? We're to pray for our leaders, our elected officials. I was reading the Bible and the Lord showed me in the Psalms how we're to pray for our president. Psalm chapter 109 verse 8. Psalm 109 verse 8 is how we pray for our president. It's let his days be few. And let another have his office. (laughs) Hey, it's the word of the Lord. Psalm 109 verse 8, you know. But this concept, I'm joking, kind of, you know. This concept of election is not that God casts his vote for us. That's not what Paul is saying to us. That God's cast a vote for you. He's got your back. No, no, no. It's saying that he has chosen you. That you have been chosen by the Lord. And here's what Paul is saying to them. Paul is saying this. Is that you were not the initiator of this relationship that you have with the Lord. He chose you. John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said these words. He says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now you say, wait a minute. I thought I chose him. Because I was in a meeting or in a crusade or in a church service and the pastor gave an invitation for salvation and and I made a decision in my heart and in my mind that I wanted to follow Christ and I raised my hand or I came forward down the aisle and I responded to Christ. I chose him. Wait a minute. He chose me? did, Did he choose me or did I choose him? Yes. You see, somewhere in God's omniscience, which means that he's all-knowing, 
and God's omnipotence, which means that he's all-powerful. Somewhere in there, and I don't understand it, and neither do you, somewhere in there, God's choice, his choosing of you and I, and our decision to follow him meet together. In John chapter 6, Jesus said these words. John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me. Now that speaks of election, doesn't it? That the Father gives him people. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. That speaks of decision. You see that? In one sentence, you see election, God choosing you, and decision, you responding and choosing him. And then he says, and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. That means that if anyone comes to him, that is, makes a decision, that they will not be turned away or rejected or told in the end, well, hey, your name isn't on the list. I know you chose. I know you came forward. But, hey, your name's not. No, no, no. He says, all that come to me will in no wise be cast out. Now, just a few verses later, chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says this. He says, no man can come to me. Now, that's a decision. If you come to Christ, it's a decision that you make. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. That speaks of choice. God's choosing, doesn't it? That you're elected. No one can come unless God draws him. And so you see how both things are present. God electing us, choosing us, saying, I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. And us also in response, choosing him. Now, it short-circuits the mind to understand how that works. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, gives us a clue. It says this. It says, whom he did foreknow. That means that before you were even born, he already knew. He foreknew that you were going to choose him. Those whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate. So that means before you were even born, God already knew the course that your life was going to take and that you would come to a point where you would choose him. And knowing that, the Bible says that before you were even born, he chose you first. He predestinated you. Before you were even born, he chose you. Now, has anybody's brain exploded yet? (laughs) Because you can't understand these things. But yet what Paul is saying to them is not for the sake of debate. He's not trying to raise questions in their mind theologically. It's not doctrinal. It's not debate. And it's not to bring confusion into their mind as to what came first, the chicken or the egg. It's not for confusion, but rather it's for comfort. He's saying, listen, it wasn't you. It was God. It wasn't a man thing that happened to you when you were saved. It was a God thing that God reached into your life and he did a work within you. And that's what it is. Now, someone's going to say that's not fair. This concept of election, that's not fair that God would choose some because it implies that he didn't choose others. And and I don't like that. How do I know if I'm chosen? You know how you know? Choose him and you'll find out that he chose you. You say, I don't want to choose him. Well, then you're probably not chosen. (laughs) Spurgeon put it like this. He said, it's like an archway that you see, a doorway. And on top of the archway is inscribed the words, whosoever will, let him come. But then after you receive that invitation and you walk through underneath that archway and you turn around and look behind you, inscribed on the opposite side are the words, 
Behold, I have chosen you from the foundation of the world. And so both things are true in the same place. If you want to be chosen, choose him. And you'll find out you were chosen. He will not cast you out. See? Now, this is the evidence that they are elected. And this is what Paul brings to them. It's in verse 5. He says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only. In other words, listen, it's not that you just signed up for something. This isn't just some scheme wherein you said, oh, okay, uh, I want to be a part of this church as you look at the bloodied back of Paul and the broken knee as he limps into town and preaches this word and you say, yeah, you know, I want to do that too. I want to live that way. It doesn't make sense. And what Paul's saying is that this gospel that you received, it isn't the work of man. It isn't something that's just in word. This isn't a program or some game or some scheme. And when I came there and preached to you, you knew that. This gospel was not in word only, but also, he says in three things. He says, in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. That the work that the Lord performed in the people that was there, the presence of his spirit... The word that he was speaking to them. The gift that they were receiving, this salvation through the blood of Christ upon the cross, was not something that they were just hearing about and saying, hey, that sounds good, but God was confirming it in them so real and so radical that it was affecting them in their deepest part in their soul and their lives were changed forever. And Paul is saying that's the proof that God chose you, not that you just responded to the word of a man but that God met you with power and with his spirit in a way wherein you could yourself say in much assurance, you were sure. You knew that you were saved that time when you gave your life to him. And then he goes on to prove it even more in the second half of the verse because he says, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes. In other words, what Paul is saying is that there was nothing about our presence or about our presentation to you that would make you look at it and say, wow, that's impressive. He's bloody. He's limping. The Bible says that he speaks with weakness and in fear, that he's not eloquent, that he doesn't preach in the wisdom of men, but he preaches the cross of Christ. There was no lights. There was no smoke stream. He didn't put on a drama presentation as he was giving to them the gospel, but he simply came among them in the synagogue, and it says that he openly alleged that Jesus is the Christ. And God so manifested his spirit upon that message that the work of salvation began to move in the hearts of the people and God saved them. You know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes. And so Paul gives to them this proof, this assurance that they are in God and in Christ is that you were chosen by God. And it's proven by the fact that he met you with power and assurance when he saved you. Remember that work that God began in your life. Don't forget that time that you gave your life to Christ and you knew that he did something in your life, in your heart. You've been chosen by him. Paul says it's the evidence of your assurance. Then number three in verse six, the third evidence that they are, in fact, in the Lord is the evidence of a changed life. And it's manifested for us in three components. Look with me at verse six. He says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. The first change that they experienced in their life was in their disposition. 
He says that you became followers of us. And listen carefully. He says that you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Now, doesn't it sound like those two things don't go together? I don't know about you, but joy and affliction usually are contradictory elements, you know. Usually when there's affliction in my life, I'm not experiencing joy. But in the life of a Christian, you can experience joy while you're in the midst of affliction. And Paul is saying, don't you remember? There was a riot. There was affliction. There is persecution. And yet God can give you a supernatural joy. And what Paul is saying to them is that the blessings of the Christian life, listen carefully, church, the blessings of the Christian life supersede the circumstances of this present age. Only in the Lord can you experience joy at the same time you're going through affliction. That's why it's called the peace that passes understanding. It doesn't make sense that I should have peace in this season of my life. That's why it's called joy unspeakable. It means it's unexplainable. Joy unexplainable. It doesn't make sense. And so Paul says it's evidenced in your disposition that you're experiencing joy in the midst of your affliction. Not only in their disposition, but also in their demonstration in verse 7. He says, so that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, both in the northern part of the peninsula and in the southern part. That entire area, the Grecian peninsula, was affected by the demonstration of faith of the Thessalonians who, because of their affliction, were an effective witness. What Paul is saying is that, listen, your problems became your pulpit. Because of the affliction you were facing and the joy that accompanied it, it caused other people to look at your life and say, wow, this is real. This gospel works. This Savior saves. So much so, Paul says in verse 8, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, listen, so that we need not to speak anything. In other words, the effectiveness of your ministry that is based upon your example of having joy in tribulation is so effective that we don't even need to come back through that area and start more churches. That God is working through you, through the affliction that you're going through, to reach other people. You've become an example to those that are around you because of the joy of the Lord you're experiencing in the midst of your tribulation. So their disposition, their demonstration, and then also a changed life in verse 9, a different direction, verse 9. He says, for they themselves, that is the Christians in Thessalonica, show of us or for us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true In other words, your whole direction is different. You lived in Thessalonica. You served the pagan deities of the Grecian culture. You lived in sight of Mount Olympus. And you were given to the service of idols. But your direction has changed. You're no longer living after the old life. You're no longer doing things to serve your flesh and your carnal nature. But rather, you're serving the true and the living God. And it's an evidence that you're saved. Hey, how about you and I? Is your life changing? What direction are you growing in? Are you growing 
away from the things of the old life, the idols of the world, the things that are perishing? Or are you growing towards those things and shrinking in the things of God? You can only be growing in one direction at a time. There is no such thing as neutral in the Christian life. You're either growing in the Lord or you're growing in the world. It's one or the other. And Paul says, listen, you're growing in the Lord. We see it in you. And so there's a change. There's a new nature. And Paul says, this is evidence to me that God is in your midst. The tribulation, the affliction that you're facing, it's there. It's real. But God is working in you. There's a change in your life. And it should be an encouragement to you if your life is changing. That God is indeed working even though the circumstances are bad. And then finally in verse 10, the fourth evidence that God is at work in in, in a life is that there's a new hope. He says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. He says, listen, you are looking for Jesus Christ to come back. You don't look for Jesus Christ to come back from heaven with hope an expectation if you're not a believer. And Paul does two things by bringing this to their attention here. First of all, he reminds them what they're waiting for. He's saying, listen, you might be going through it, but what's coming, it's going to be worth it. The thing that God has prepared, the kingdom that's coming, the eternal life, the place that he's prepared, it's going to be worth it. But he also reminds them of something else. He says, hey, you think you're going through tribulation now? You think the problems that you're facing are affliction and difficulty and woe? You're going to be delivered from the real tribulation that is yet to be. He says, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. You read Revelation chapters 6 through 19, and you see what's going to come during the final seven years of man's history upon the earth. And it causes any problem that you and I might have to seem like nothing. And Jesus delivered us. Hey, we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 5 that we've been delivered. But listen, the hope of the true Christian is not a perfect set of circumstances here on this planet. Because listen, that's not going to happen. And even if it does, it will change very quickly and they won't be perfect anymore. The hope of the Christian is the second coming of Christ. I heard a radio preacher earlier in the week and he was, I don't know why, because I like the guy, but he was berating those that look for and, you know, wait for the coming of Jesus Christ and study prophecy and look for, you know, this, this, this and I, and I listened to the thing and it bothered me because I, I started thinking to myself, I thought, okay, well tell that to Paul, you know, tell, tell Paul that he shouldn't be concerned with the second coming of Christ or watching the news and the things going on in the world and, and see if Jesus is coming soon. What, what are we hoping for in this world? Really, what, what does this world have going for it? It has two things. One, the hope of revival. And two, the coming of Christ. And that's it. There's nothing else to hope for in this world. Some would say to be consumed with or concerned with the second coming of Christ is bad. Paul would say it's an evidence that you're saved. And he points it out to them. He says, look, you are waiting for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And he says, this is an evidence that God is at work within your life. And so Paul, he tells these believers, he says that their assurance is not measured in circumstances, but rather it can be measured in the fruitfulness of their lives 
It can be measured in the fact that they were chosen by God and that they were saved with power, with the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. That their lives are changed. They have a new disposition. There's joy. There's a new demonstration. They're an example to others and a new, uh, you know, um, what's the third one? Direction, that they've turned from idols and they're following the living God. And it can be evidenced by a new hope. Let me ask you, suffering saint, are those things true in your life? Are those things real in your life? God's will for you and for me is not that we would be on a roller coaster. His desire isn't that we be up some days. Hey, we're saved. We're doing good with God. And then the next we're down low and, you know, wondering where he is and what he's doing within our lives. That's not his will. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10, Peter says this. Listen carefully. Maybe you want to look this up later and highlight it, underline it, memorize it. He says, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After that you have suffered a while, make you perfect. Establish, strengthen, and settle you. But that's God's will for your life, is to bring you into a place of stability. A place where you're established and strengthened upon his grace and his person and who he is. But part of the process in building you and bringing you to that place is that there's affliction. They're suffering. In a sense, God would say, you're right on schedule. He's working in your life. But listen, he is accomplishing unspeakable things through the afflictions that you're going through. He's purifying you like a refiner. It talks about the furnace of affliction. He's rooting out impurities and things that are going to wreck you later. He's taking them out of your life and he's using the afflictions of this time to do it. He's birthing hope in you. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. You read it and Paul says that we glory in tribulations because ultimately tribulations result in hope. They birth hope within our lives as God shows up time and again and he proves that he's working within us and it brings us to a place of stability. And trials and tribulations work those things in our life. The afflictions that we go through preach truth to other people. It causes them to be saved as they observe our lives. And they build the pillars of stability. James says if you're suffering, if you're going through tribulation, pray. And he says let patience have its perfect work that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God is working in your life and in mine. And he's seeking to establish us and strengthen us and settle us. And he will bring you through those waters. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for the eternal and timeless truth that you place before us. And we thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us to suffer in the ups and downs, but that you work in us to bring us to that place of strength. I think of those two pillars that held up the house of the Lord. They were called Boaz and Jacinth to establish and strengthen. And I pray, Lord, for your people here tonight. I pray right now in Jesus' name, Lord, that they would experience the work of establish and strengthen in them. That regardless of the affliction and the furnace that they're going through, the trials and the struggles, the depression and the anxiety, perhaps the sicknesses or the financial pressures or the family failures or whatever else it might be, Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name that you would do such a work by your Holy Spirit in them that you would lift away the burden of those things and that they would see right through them, right into eternity. And that they would see you seated upon the throne. 
that you hold all things in the palm of your hand. That you're working all things together for good. That tribulation produces patience. And patience produces hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And so I ask you now, even now, Lord, as we sing this song, as we lift our hands and our hearts to you, that you would take this word and write it in our hearts and that you'd cause us to reflect upon who you are and what you're doing in our lives. We give ourselves to you. Bless your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.